All right, gather around. Uh, we're uh, returning to our study of Second Peter. Uh, last week, if you remember, we uh, began a new sermon series looking at Second uh, uh, Peter. This is Peter's last written words that we have recorded. And last week, we took a deep dive uh, into the false teaching, which was the driving factor behind Peter writing this letter. Um, we, we know that Peter himself was writing this letter, knowing that his end was near. And so these last words of Peter carry a lot of weight for the churches that are reading this originally. Uh, and I think they should carry that amount of weight for us this morning as well. We know the false teaching's main contention that was that there would be no second coming of Christ and no final judgment. And so based on this false teaching, this wrong belief about God, uh, about the end, the false teachers were promoting a belief system um, where you would have eternal salvation for the believer, but at the same time they promoted an immoral lifestyle in the present. Essentially, they were saying this, there's, there's no final judgment, there's, we're saved by grace alone, then it doesn't matter how you live or what you do with your bodies today, God is going to forgive you. And so they were twisting the gospel of grace to be a license or permission to sin. We, we know that these false teachers were also the false teachers that were in the book of Jude, and there Jude says that these teachers are twisting the gospel to make a license for sin. Now, it's easy for us to look at false teachers and to judge them, but let's not be too quick. Uh, it is a difficult question, and it does make sense. If we are not saved by our works, but by grace alone, why do we care about moral and godly living? Why be pious if Jesus was pious for us? I guarantee you, you might not openly say that you've thought that, but to some degree in your own mind, when temptation has come knocking on your door, that this is how Satan has whispered into your ear and drew you into sin by perverting this gospel of grace into a license for immorality. So that's the important background behind our passage today because Peter will take this question, why, uh, live from, uh, why do we fight for morality if we're saved by grace? That's, that's the question. In essence, our passage this morning is the meat and potatoes of the rest of the book. Everything Peter will say after this point in the letter uh, draws out of this foundational teaching. So our entire passage this morning is probably the most important sermon in the entire series. So aren't you glad you're here today? Why shall we live godly lives if we're saved by grace? Peter addresses this question head on this morning. So as we prepare to hear God's word, I think it is good for us to prepare our hearts uh, and by doing this in song. So let us stand together. Uh, Naomi will lead us in a chorus of Alas, did our Savior bleed? And then the chorus will be uh, the chorus from At the Cross. So let's stand together uh, as we sing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we've already received the answer from this wonderful hymn 
that we want to live for you who died for us. Lord, how can we ever repay uh, the love and the grace and the mercy that you've showered upon us? Lord, I pray that through the preaching of your word today, you might impress upon our hearts um, the, the debt of, of Christ's a magnificent sacrifice on the cross and what that means for us. I pray, dear Lord, that we would cherish afresh and anew what uh, you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we read your word today, your spirit would fall upon this place and that hard hearts would be made soft and that, Lord, we would hear a divine word this morning. Lord, open up our ears, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive such a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. It's a common mistake, I think, for anyone that lives in Frankfurt. You have some friends or family visiting. You're excited to see them and pick them up at the airport and have that wonderful reunion outside of customs where they come through and they come and there's big smiles and hugs. We all love that, right? Anybody? I, I do. <laughs> The day arrives, you're excited to, to get there, even planning to park and be a little early so you don't miss that moment. You check in, yeah, real quick on the way. Oh, what's the flight number? What terminal again? Oh, there's some confusion, right? It's, it's not a Lufthansa flight, but it's still terminal one. Then the wheels start clicking. Oh, wait, they said they got a great deal. The flight was cheap. Oh no, they're flying to Frankfurt Hahn, right? Anybody have that experience? I don't know. For some reason, there are two airports called Frankfurt that happen to be an hour and a half away from each other. And then of course, there's this mad dash to the other airport and your 80-year-old mother's waiting on the curb halfway to Luxembourg. Maybe that's just me, but I think a few of you might have had this problem as well. Well, last week, last week in our message, we pointed out that what you think about the end determines how you live your life in the present. 
Well, this week is a, a similar point is being made, but with a nuance. What you think about the end determines the path that you take to get there, the road that you drive. And so what we think about the end not only affects my decisions today, but it also affects the path and the trajectory and the sum total of my life decisions. I live 15 minutes from Frankfurt Flughafen, but an hour and a half away from Hahn. I will take two very different paths to get to these two different destinations. My morning will look different. My gas tank will look different. The route will look different. The whole trajectory of my journey will be different because I will take a different path to get to a different destination. And this is the issue Peter is addressing in 2 Peter verses 3 to 11. The false teachers... And the true believers in 2 Peter are walking two very different paths. And they are heading into two very different destinations. Let me recall for you the way that Peter describes the false teachers. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. These people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That's one destination and one path. Now in contrast, look at Peter's exhortation to the true believers in these churches. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Here we see two very different destinies and two different ways of living. Two different ends, two different paths. How then ought we to live in light of the wonderful news of God's grace and mercy given to us in Jesus Christ. Peter says it very clearly in chapter three, verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to that day of his return. So in our verses this morning, Peter will give us the nuts and bolts of why that's the case. Why ought we to live holy lives? Why, even though that we're saved by grace, we ought to strive to live holy and obedient lives today? And how this will work out in the life of someone transformed by grace. So Peter gives kind of a mini sermon uh, on these verses. And as good sermons tend to do, he makes three points. The rest of the letter he builds off of these three points. And You can look at these three points in this way. Verses three and four speak of the foundation of our salvation, of God's power in us. Point two in verses five to seven, I switched around, five to seven is the pathway, right? And that's, he describes the fight of the faithful. And verses nine, eight to 11, uh, it's the destination and it's the urgency of, of holy living. What is at stake with the way that we live our lives and what does that tell us about our destination. So let's begin with the reality of what happens in the heart of a believer when they come to faith in Christ. And we see here, Peter begins by rehearsing the gospel, rehearsing the good news message of the cross. And he begins with a reminder about all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And here we find the foundation of our salvation. So look at the first two verses, three and four. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here's a presentation of what happens in the heart and in the life of a Christian when they are saved, when they are justified through faith in Christ. These, you could say, is the positive side of salvation. Often we tend to think of salvation of what we're saved from. We're saved from going to hell. We're saved from eternal separation from God. We're, we're saved from damnation. But, but these verses tell us that part of salvation is what we're saved for. We are saved for something as well. We are saved for heaven. And Peter explains that three things happen in the life of the believer. And so you could call this uh, point one, sub point three, three points. (laughs) But here we see believers are given and filled with his divine power. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are filled with divine, supernatural power, the Holy Spirit. Through knowledge of Christ, we are given precious and great promises. That's that living hope that we will have this secure and assured destination. And believers participate. We get to participate in the divine nature. And as we do that, we escape our sinful nature that's corrupted flesh that's, that's due to our sinful desires. And so... These are the big topics of salvation, and we could have a sermon on each of these, uh, but let me do my best to simplify these three foundational benefits of salvation by God's grace. First, we're filled with divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, or a godly life. We know from the rest of the Bible that when the Bible speaks about God's divine power, this means the Holy Spirit. We call it the Holy Spirit because the Spirit empowers Christians to live a holy life. We are told that we've been given divine power for all things that pertain to life and to godliness. This means that God's power is enough. God's power is sufficient. His grace is enough. We have all need, uh, we have all we need in our lives our marriages, our jobs, to live this life in a godly and righteous way. God has given us power for all things that we may face. Um, and there's, there's no exception or, or something we face that God's power is insufficient to meet. We do not need to supplement God's power with any other power. He is enough. He has given us his divine power for anything we face in this life. We're not lacking anything we need to live a victorious and abundant life as God intends for us to live. The Holy Spirit is inside every believer. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by or through the Holy Spirit. If you've come to faith in Christ, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit does innumerable things in the life of a believer. I could list probably 50 things that the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit does. 
And the point Peter is making here is that we don't need any other special knowledge or wisdom. We don't need any extra power or tips or tricks. We don't need more techniques. We don't need five ways to live your best life now. His divine power gives us everything we need to f- that for anything that we're going to face in this life. His divine power gives us everything we need for anything that we will face in this life. There are no additional secret codes to find or keys to unlock or tips to find. We have everything we need for anything we face through the Holy Spirit. No therapist or doctor or author or professor or motivational speaker will be able to add what we already have in Jesus Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for anything we face in this life. That's the first foundational truth. The second foundational truth in the life of the believer is that through the gospel message, we are given these great and precious promises. How can we have access to this divine power? Those those little conjunctions are important. Look again at the first part of verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How can we access that power? Conjunctions are important. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How can you have this divine power? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. As we hear the good news of the gospel, about our sin, about the holiness of God, about the work of Jesus dying on the cross for us, as we hear this message, we receive knowledge of Jesus. And we know Jesus through the message of the cross, through the message that he calls us uh, to his own glory and excellence. And he calls us to, to declare that same message. So as we learned last week, this knowledge is head and heart knowledge. As we know Jesus more, then this divine power will grow within us more and more. This divine power comes to us through knowledge of Jesus. So through knowledge of Jesus, we receive this divine power to live like him, to live Holy Spirit-empowered lives, to be like Jesus in all his glory and in all his goodness. As we know him more, the Spirit fills us more and more with his power and his presence. So if this power comes to us through knowing Jesus, then we ought to be asking, how can we know Jesus better? How can we know more about these precious and great promises? Well, how can we know Jesus better? How how can we know this power more? Well, at this point, I could give you 10 ways to know Jesus better, and that would just be law. Do these things, and you'll know Jesus better. But there's really an easy way to answer that question. How can you know Jesus better? Many people can give you a lot of answers to this question. I know uh, Jesus um, by walking in nature, or I know Jesus by enjoying a nice meal and time with friends. I know Jesus by just being quiet and listening for this small, still voice. None of these are Christian nor biblical. So how can you know Jesus better? Well, ask yourself, who is Jesus? Is Jesus nature incarnated? Is Jesus a meal incarnated? Is he a product of your subconscious voice incarnated? No, Jesus is the word of God incarnate. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. If you want to have divine power, if you want to receive these precious and great promises, then it comes through knowing Jesus better through his word. As we know the word of God more and more, as we spend time letting this word form and shape and fashion us, as we dive deep into meditating upon his word, then we will know Jesus more and more. Know this book, the Bible, and you will know Jesus more and more. Many of us yearn to know God better. And we want God to do something to make himself known to us. We want miracles. We want a happy feeling. We want some sort of supernatural voice to tell us something. But we have, in the Bible, access to this divine power through knowledge of Jesus, the word incarnate. Reminds me of a satire I saw a few years ago with a man sitting literally three feet away from the Bible asked God to speak to him. Know this book, and you will know Jesus more and more. So let's review. We've covered two of the foundational truths of salvation covered in verses three and four. Believers are given supernatural power. Through the knowledge of Christ, we are given these great and precious promises. The last one we'll look at now is believers get to participate in the divine nature, escaping our sinful nature. Now we come to this third foundational truth about our salvation. Those divine things that God does in us. Look at the second part of verse four. We'll just read the whole thing to get the context. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us these precious and very great promises, Now here comes, so that through them, you may become partakers or participants of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we have this divine power at work in our hearts, and that comes to us through knowledge of Jesus in the gospel and in his word. And then we read this, that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Through them refers to Jesus' glory and his excellence. Because of his glory and his excellence, we can share in the divine nature. That's crazy. Because of Jesus' goodness and his perfection and his glory, we can share in the divine nature. We're saved by his goodness, his righteousness. And because of Jesus' excellence, we can participate in the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, that's a big question. I don't think I'm going to answer it fully. But basically, either you would somehow have to enter into God, which the Bible never suggests happens, or God would somehow have to enter into you. And the Bible clearly teaches that that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, God's spirit enters into the life of a person. And this means that we are united to Christ so that all his blessings become our blessings. And we get to have access to the Father and we're united to him uh, and the Father as the spirit comes to dwell in us. Jesus talks about this in John's gospel and, and Peter was sitting under Jesus' feet when 
uh, Jesus said it. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and will come to make our home with them. So when we read in verse four that we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, that means that we have this new nature within us now. We are new creatures. The old is gone and the new has come. And Christ has set us free from our slavery to our sinful desires and passions. We've escaped from the corrupt flesh that is in us and in this world. So this is the real meat and bones of salvation. We're no longer slaves to sin. Through the knowledge of Jesus and his word and in the the message of the cross, we are filled with divine power so that we can participate in the divine nature becoming more and more like Christ. This divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness, and we have access to this power as we know Jesus better through the gospel and through his word, and his divine power permits us to live holy lives here and now. And so these first two verses supply the foundation of our salvation. God does this supernatural work of salvation in the life of every believer. He fills us with his Holy Spirit, his divine power. He gives us a new destiny through his son. And now we have this new destiny, this new destination that we're headed. We receive knowledge of Jesus. And through Christ's glory and excellence, we can live out this new nature. So we're no longer slaves to our sinful desires, but we get to partake in God's very own nature as the spirit is in us. So we spent a lot of time on these opening two verses, but it's the foundation is solid, then the rest will be much easier to understand. Because God does this supernatural work in the life of the believer, Peter now gives a moral imperative. So first he tells us about who we are in Christ, and then he says, therefore, in verse five, therefore, or for this reason, what reason? what God has just done in the life of the believer. For that reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For this reason. Why? Because God has filled us with his divine power. God has done a miraculous work in the salvation in our hearts. Therefore, for this reason, we make every effort to add to our faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. These are the natural consequences of what has happened in the life of the believer in verses three and four. They flow out of our relationship with Jesus. As we know him better, our lives will reflect him more and more. You become like what you worship, right? If you worship beauty and fitness, you, I don't know if you become beautiful, but you at least go in that direction, right? Uh, But your heart becomes vain, let's say that, okay. If you, whatever you worship, you you become like. That's a, a spiritual principle in the Bible. And so God has done this supernatural work in our hearts, and now through his divine power, we are fighting to live that life out in reality. And Peter's exhortation to holy living is grounded in the saving work of Christ. God has done the supernatural work of salvation, pouring faith into our hearts as we heard the gospel, right? We've received this faith. 
And now we are called to exercise this faith. And we do this as we strive to align our lives to this new reality. So God supplies the power and the faith and through the divine power at work in us, through the Holy Spirit, we read that God has given us everything that we need and will face in life. And so this is what's wrong with the false teaching in these churches because they had wrong thoughts about God because they had this golden ticket to heaven. Because they thought there was no final judgment, they stopped fighting against their sinful nature and fell back into their old way of living. But Peter reminds the believers, if Christ has done this saving work in your heart, then you will, by God's divine power, live out those virtues. Warren Wearsby, he writes this about these verses. Where there is life, there must be growth. The new birth is not the end, it's the beginning. God gives his children all they need to live godly lives, but his children must apply themselves and be diligent to use these means of grace he has provided. Spiritual growth is not automatic. It requires cooperation with God and application of spiritual diligence and discipline. As Paul says, work out your salvation, for it's God who works in you. It's not enough for a Christian to to let go and let God, right? That's not in the Bible. As though the, the, the spiritual growth was God's work alone. Literally, Paul writes, make every effort to be bring alongside. Uh, that's what add means, to bring alongside. So the father and the child have to work together in sanctification. So if your life does not reflect these traits, these, these seven character virtues, then it's good gauge and challenge for us to check our lives. If you're in a discipleship group or a small group, it's good to ask yourself, yeah, how does my life match up to these virtues? Um, These virtues are very similar to the fruits of the spirit that we find in Galatians. Some of them are exactly the same. And these virtues help us see where our lives are out of alignment with the Lord. Is my behavior at work and my workplace characterized by goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love in a Christian sense? Is my marriage demonstrating goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love? God has done a saving work in our hearts. Therefore, our lives begin to reflect this work for it's he who's working in us. So when you get up in the morning, let me show you how this might work or play out practically. We all have, well, I hope, I hope we have an earnest desire to get up and, and read the word of God and spend some time with the Lord. Now, God gave you that hunger and thirst to, to read the word of God. That did not come from you naturally. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. That desire will not come naturally. God gave you the desire to read his word. But God is not going to set your alarm. You have to set the alarm. God will not throw you out of bed. You have to get out of bed. God will not make you fall asleep. You have to go to bed at a reasonable hour. And he's not just going to put this thing that you go, oh, okay. Yeah, God will give us the desire, but we have to strive to make that God-given desire a reality in your life. So uh, it's not all God, 
Yes, you do have to participate in your sanctification, but God will meet you and he promises to meet us in our efforts with his divine power that will give us everything that we need for anything that we face. So he will make your efforts effective. Don't forget, verse three, his divine power has given us everything we need for godly living. And so that brings us to our final point this morning. What's at stake in all of this? And this is the urgency of holy living. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. And if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a matter of eternal destiny. Peter is taking this false teaching seriously. At the end, we will stand before a holy God and we will be judged by our works. We read it in the Gospels, we read it in Revelation, we read it in other places. So our works, although they don't save us, but at the judgment seat, our works will be a demonstration of what Christ has done in our hearts. So yes, our works do matter. And they do have eternal significance. So if our lives are out of line with God's word today, we ought to be fighting to kill those parts that don't align with God's character. He saved us from a slimy pit, so we don't want to crawl back into the mud after he's cleaned us up. Makes no sense. Peter actually says it this way. He says, when he's referring to the false teachers in chapter two, they claim to be saved, but they're living immoral, ungodly lives. And he says, of them the Proverbs is true. A dog returns to its vomit, And a sow or a pig that is washed returns to her wallowing in mud. Meaning, God didn't save us from a life of sin and evil so that we would continue to live in it. That's like cleaning a pig and then sending it right back into the the mud. It doesn't make sense. For Christ to die on a cross for your sins so that you can continue to live in sin, it makes no sense. It's like cleaning a pig so they can crawl and crap again. Or a dog eating poison, throwing it up, but then going back and eating it again. Jesus didn't die on a cross so that we could remain in our sin. So he calls us, he elects us, that's his part, but our part is to strive to confirm God's calling and election in our lives. Verse 10. It's in the fight against our sinful nature that we demonstrate that we have been saved. In verse eight, Peter speaks about being ineffective or unproductive, literally unfruitful. Now, Peter, again, was sitting with Jesus the night that he died when Jesus taught this, I'm the vine and my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, that is unfruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you, and no no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. As we walk with the Lord and we grow in our knowledge of him, we will be growing in these virtues in increasing measure. But if we are not connected to Christ through his word, through his spirit, through the church, then we will be like those unfruitful, ineffective branches. And what happens to them? They're thrown into the fire. But the one who grows in these things, 2 Peter 2.11, will receive such a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it does matter how we live our lives. As we close today, we come back to our opening question. Why shall we live godly lives if we're saved by grace alone? We'll come back to the two airports, Han and Frankfurt. Two destinations will set our journey on two very different paths. And obviously, there are two different roads to two different destinations. The road we are traveling on will quickly tell us where we are headed. That's what our works can tell us. But what does your daily walk tell you about your final destination? Are you gleefully, blindly going to eternal destruction? Or is your life marked by the virtues that we see in verses five to seven and in growing measure? The beauty of the gospel is that God has given us the ultimate GPS system in Jesus Christ. Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He's the only way to the Father. And at any time in your life, we can re-coordinate our destination through Jesus. And it's only through Jesus that we will get to the Father. And we just have to answer the call and answer the invitation. And Jesus will come and meet you and he will take you to the Father. Um, There's even an airport in Austria, I just found out, that um, takes people that thought they were going to Australia and rebooks flights for them to, to Australia. Well, Jesus will rebook your flight for you. He comes to us on our wayward journey in the wrong direction, and he gives us this invitation. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. That's the invitation of Second Peter. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this great work of salvation that you have done in our hearts, filling us with your divine power uh, through, through knowledge of Christ, giving us these great and precious promises. Lord, allowing us to participate in a new nature, abandoning our corrupt and sinful nature. Lord, all of these things are, are, are grace and mercy that you shower upon us in Jesus Christ.
And I pray, dear Lord, that if there's anybody here today that does not know you, that they would respond to you this morning in faith, that they would put their trust and their hope and their faith and their security and their whole being into your precious hands so that you might guide them to eternity. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in someone's heart, that they would respond in faith and confess you as their Lord and their Savior this morning. Lord, take these words, uh, take verses five to seven for the faithful, and let us uh, check our lives upon them. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to convict us where we are falling short. And may we ask that same Holy Spirit for divine power to overcome and to grow in these things in increasing measure. Lord, you do that good work. We have witnesses of that, godly men and women that have gone before us, and we have seen the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life, so we know it's true. So Lord, give us more of your Holy Spirit so we may become more like your Son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.